By the way, after looking at that picture, I'm going to say this. I'm dreaming of a brown Christmas. I'd rather not have snow, but I'm a fuddy-duddy. Anyway, um, today we're going to look at the topic of hope for a few moments. Uh, hope is incredibly important to the human experience. And so much of our world lives in a constant state of hopelessness. And those of us who have been in Jesus for a long time, we have this hope in us that's always kind of there. That's not normative for the human experience. You have to realize that. Most people go to bed at night hopeless. And they get up in the morning and they're putting their trust in things like a government or whatever as their source of hope. And that ends up being a very hopeless, hopeless situation. What I love about the Christmas story in the Bible is that within the story of the birth of Jesus Christ are so many other stories with great messages. And today we're going to look at a couple that faced a very hopeless situation. Uh, They were older and they were infertile. And in that culture, that was a very shaming situation. And they faced hopelessness uh, in that they never got a child. And year after year after year, they faced this situation. But then God showed up into that hopeless situation and brought them a child. Isn't that classic God? He brings hope where there is no hope. He brings hope to the hopelessness. I want to ask you a question this morning. Would you agree that sometimes life doesn't turn out the way we expect? Would you agree with that statement, that question? That life often doesn't turn out like we expect? Or maybe all of you got a plan, amen? I'm working my plan. I got that baby nailed down. Everything's working out just like I planned. I hardly ever hear anybody say that. Sometimes things turn out better than we expect. We don't think on that side of the equation very often. Sometimes things work out really well. I look at my wife and think, thank God for you. I don't deserve you. Some of you should look at your spouse and say that. I married way above my level, amen? And I got you. And we, don't, we look at our mate and we go, wow, God, that was unexpected. I didn't expect that blessing in my life. Sometimes, you know, we have some kids and they actually turn out good. Hallelujah, Right? I've got a bunch of those, and I just enjoy being around my adult children so much right now. They're just a delight. And I'm going, wow, my wife did a good job here. Amen? Because it can't be me. This is really cool stuff, just to have adult children that love the Lord and are doing so well in life. You know, it's just, what a blessing. It's an unexpected blessing. And then you have great experiences that you've never imagined having. This last year, Vicky and I just travel a lot. We're getting to that age where we have a lot of freedom because our kids are all grown up. And so we take trips all the time, and we just do these really, really fun things that we both enjoy doing. And I looked at her. We were out on a walk the other day. I said, man, this has been a fun year, hasn't it? She goes, yeah, it really has been. You know, and that's just an experience you didn't expect to have. Um, Sometimes you have just great friends. You have a job that hits the sweet spot. You know, sometimes life exceeds expectations. On the flip side, sometimes life is pretty discouraging. And sometimes the experiences tend to go south. And you have, you know, an unexpected loss of employment or something like that happens where it kind of sets you back a bit. Perhaps you were dreaming of this wonderful marriage, and then you end up in divorce. And that's just a failure, hopeless kind of thing for, mo- for most people that go through it. It's devastatingly hard to someone who thought, I have a dream, but that dream has just perished and it's no longer there. Sometimes we can have a failed business or friends that betray us. And there's a myriad of ways that you can experience the unexpected as a 
you know, turning south sort of thing, a hopeless kind of situation. And it seems to be the human tendency to focus more on the negative side than the positive side. Would you agree with me on that? We tend to let ourselves be more defined that way. Oftentimes, these negative experiences that we have come into our hearts like unwelcome guests, and they just mess our lives up. And we have a hard time kind of shaking it off um, and, and, and they can keep us then from experiencing the life that God intends us to experience. Think of this couple in the Bible I'm about to talk with you on in some detail. Year after year, all they've wanted is a child. It's gone on for maybe 20, 25 years, I would imagine. I can imagine the prayers that were put forth and no response, and it seems like God is silent. Year after year, they face and struggle with infertility in a culture in which that is so shaming to be an infertile couple. Something's wrong with you. Why isn't God blessing you? You know, that kind of thought process would be prevalent in, in first century uh, Jewish culture. And whereas they once maybe hoped, that hope probably was waning by the time we pick up their story. I'm talking about Zachariah and Elizabeth. This is one of those stories within the story of Christmas that merits a look. They were childless. The Bible says that Elizabeth was unable to conceive, so she evidently had some physical problem. She's barren. No children in the family, shameful kind of uh, thing going on in their lives. And now they're old. When we pick up the story, they're old. So now... They're past childbearing age, basically, so there is no hope of having a child. Childless, barren, and old is the description of Zechariah and Elizabeth. This is the pain and the reality of their lives. And some of us can readily identify with this infertility thing. I think that happens frequently, more frequently than we realize in our, our time and age also. But very few of us can really relate to the shame that they were experiencing because they were barren. It was just something in that culture that was very difficult uh, for people to deal with because they thought so highly of children and, and the role uh, uh, that children played in the family that it's hard for us to understand the shame that people felt when they didn't have a child when they were barren. And in our day and age, women also have a lot more opportunities. I mean... In my lifetime, I've seen a bunch of women run for president. Not one. Several times. I've seen women on, on the nomination sides of the equation. That would never have happened in first century Judaism, right? I've seen women CEOs. I've seen women professors, right? Women holding high positions of influence and power. It's common. It's part of our culture. So infertility in our culture, though devastatingly hard to the couple that's dealing with it, doesn't carry the same stigma and shame it would have carried in first century Jewish culture. Because in first century Jewish culture, they were defined by children. Women often were. There are biblical heroes. I'm going to say that on the female side. You've got Deborah the prophet. She's awesome, Right? And you have Esther, the queen. She's also awesome. She was born for such a time as this. Great, powerful messages of women of God doing great, magnificent things. It's in the Bible. I think Miriam, Moses' sister, played a 
key role in the exodus of Israel. She may not have gotten the, the, the front page kind of news, but she was there all the time with them. And so in the, in the Bible, there are notable exceptions of women rising to great influence and great leadership kind of uh, moments. But by and large, the norm was that a woman would have a child or two or three or four or five or six or seven or eight, nine, ten. And that was their role in that culture. And not to have a child was to be shamed. Something's wrong. Why am I not having a child? I don't think it's fair. It's just the way it was. And this is Elizabeth, and this is Zechariah. And I know that Elizabeth felt shame. She felt disgrace because she says so. When she has a child, this girl parties, man. She is happy. And she says, now my disgrace has been removed, and her joy is fantastic. She's one of the most joyful people in the Bible when her prayers for a child are finally answered. You know, one of the things I love about Jesus Christ, I love lots of things, about our Lord and Savior, but it's this, he brings hope to the hopeless. Emptiness and hopelessness is never the last words in the life of the follower of Jesus Christ, amen? They're never the last words. And that's kind of part of the point of the story today is that God brings hope to hopeless situations and we should never, as the people of God, let ourselves be defined as hopeless, amen? Because we have Christ. And Christ always brings hope where there is no hope. And so today we're going to look at the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah, and we're going to unwrap this topic of hope a bit this first Sunday uh, of Advent season. So I'm going to read from Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 5, going through verse 25. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Stop there. Can any of you say that? I think that's in there for a reason. They did not have a problem. Their barrenness wasn't because they weren't right with God. Amen? You hear what I'm saying here today? They were doing the things they ought to be doing. I mean, they, what a testimony. They obeyed all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly, seriously. I read this and go, I wish I could do that for a day. This is Zechariah. This is Elizabeth. Listen to the but. Verse 7. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Wow, right? What a proclamation. But now we hear the response of a man 
who for probably a few decades has been hopeless. He has been a hopeless person. They've wanted a child for a long time. So remember as I read this, the state of Zechariah's heart. Then we might not be so hard on him. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? That's a statement of a hopeless person. How can I be sure of this? You're looking at Gabriel the angel, right? Come on. But he's so hopeless. That's been the definition of his life for most of his adulthood when it came to having children. How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. He's very polite to his wife. You don't call your wife old. You say she's well along in years. It's a polite way of saying, Elizabeth's old. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent, not able to speak until the day this happens, because you do not believe my words, which will come to at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long at the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done for me, she said. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away what? My disgrace among the people. It's obvious that Zechariah didn't receive wasn't prepared to receive this great news from the Lord. His hope had left him. He was a hopeless dude. He was just distraught. He thought, this will never happen. And so even when an angel of God is looking him in the eyeball saying, this is going to happen, he goes, how can I be sure? Really? But that's what hopelessness does to people. And it's interesting to me to note that his son, John, would be one who would come as the herald to Jesus Christ. He was basically the hope bearer. That was his role, to tell people there's a hope. We have Messiah coming. His job was to herald the people with the hope of Jesus Christ. It's ironic to me that the heralder of the hope of Jesus Christ came from a hopeless dad. Isn't that how God works? He brings hope into hopeless situations. And so for a few moments today, I want to unwrap this story of hope here revealed within the story of Christmas. I don't know how Christmas works at all your households. My kids are older now. My youngest is like 21. And it's been a long time since we had little kids. But I have a lot of little grandkids. And whenever you put a gift down there under the Christmas tree, that's torture. And when the moment comes for us to open gifts... It's like a free-for-all. No matter how organized we try to be, I have 12 grandkids, okay? The paper just to start to fly, you know what I'm saying? They just start ripping in there. And I know we want to enjoy each gift, right? Take pictures, and kids don't want to cooperate with that. They just want to go for the gift and tear the paper off. Well, today, as we look at this gift of hope, here's what I want us to do. Tear the paper off. It's okay to go after this thing hard. We don't have to be polite. We need to know what hope is all about when it comes uh, to this gift that God wants to give us here this first Sunday of Advent. We need to be people of prevailing hope. 
So we're going to tear into this thing, man. We're going to unwrap hope today. I want to give you a few points to help you kind of flesh it out to unwrap. What, what is the hope we have in Jesus really all about? So here we go. Ready to tear into this thing? We're going to start tearing into the gift of hope. Hope recognizes and faces fears. When the angel first came to Zechariah, we're told Zechariah is gripped with fear. We all would have been. If Gabriel appears to any one of us, our response is going to be what? That's going to be a fearful moment. And the first thing the angel says uh, to, to Zechariah is, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Take heart. Zechariah was afraid. It's not condemned. It's normative of that situation. It probably is reasonable and expected. But the angel says, don't be afraid. Why? Because fear is an inhibitor. Fear will keep you from hearing the message of hope God has for you. Fear is a distraction. And before the angel can move into the good news uh, uh, that Zechariah needed to hear, he had to address his fear. And so I think we need to understand and recognize fears in our lives and deal with them so that the hope of God can prevail in our lives. The question is not whether we will fear or not fear in life. The question is whether we will fear truly. And I'm going to explain what I mean by that here. We have to fear truly. We have to fear correctly. Um, frequently, Vicky and I go for late night walks. One of those benefits of not having little kids. And we'll walk around town. The trails around Brookings are really wonderful. And I love going out when it's dark. And you have all the lights. They're, they're spaced out on the trail. And walking through the pines and some of the woods, it reminds me of my childhood where I grew up in Minnesota. So I really enjoy that. And oftentimes, I always think I'm so witty and cute. because I say this a gazillion times with poor Vicky. I often say, we're walking through the woods of Narnia. And she'll smile and say, yeah, you said that about a thousand times now. And so she'll tolerate. And I always think I'm witty and cute every time I say it again. But Narnia is the creation of C.S. Lewis. It's in his books. And it's this, this magical place that um, the kids go through uh, the wardrobe and get to. If you don't know the books of Narnia or the books of C.S. Lewis, they're kind of an interesting read. Well, in one of those books, it's called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Uh, I want to get to, I have actually, I got a thread of thought going on here, okay? So just go with me. Um, in one of those books, The Voyager of the Dawn uh, Treader, there's a young boy named Eustace in that book. Eustace has no fear. And at first you think, well, that's really cool. This kid has no fear. But it's not that he's fearless with courage, but he lacks dread of awe. He just lacks awe of God. And so it's not really good that he has no fear because it's not healthy for him. Jonathan Rogers um, wrote in the world according to Narnia, and he pointed out this. Finally, in the presence of Aslan the lion, who represents Jesus Christ in Lewis's books, um, Eustace develops a sense of fear that manifested itself in awe. And he said, this is like a breakthrough for this young man. Um, you and I need to have a, a, an awe of God that overrides all the worldly fears that we can experience. Let me, let me define for you what I mean by the word awe, okay? It's a really important word to get. When we talk about having awe of God, it means this. A feeling of reverential respect for God, which is super important that you reverence God, amen? Mixed with fear, he holds your life in the palm of his hand and wonder. 
So when we say, I, I am in awe of God, we're saying, I have this reverential respect for God. I bow before him. I worship him. I adore him. And I do have a fear of him because he is the one being that holds my life in the palm of his hand. And I have a wonderment of what God will do. There's just, just, that's awe. And we're to have, as the people of God, this healthy awe of God going on. Then all the other fears that we experience in life find their proper place. It's not that we'll get rid of all the other fears, but those fears won't rule and dominate our lives. What will dominate our lives is an awe of God. Once our fears find their correct place in life, then hope in God is discovered and can be heard and can be embraced. That's why the angel Gabriel said to, to, um, to uh, uh, Zechariah right away, don't be afraid because he knew this kind of fear is going to inhibit you from hearing what God wants to hear. But we're not... We're not, we're not supposed to understand that to mean that we're not to have a fear, a healthy fear of God. We are. Amen? We're to have an awe of God, a reverential respect of God, a, a fear that our lives are in God's hands, a, a wonderment of what God is up to, and then fear finds its place. We lived in a fear-based culture. This is why I'm talking about this. We live in a fear-based culture. I'm going to take a really, really relevant detour with you this morning. We live in fear-based culture right now, and it's used to manipulate people all the time. It's, it's a fear of what could be. It's a fear of what could happen. It's a fear of the future. It's a manipulation tool. And so much of our culture is very adept at using this thing to try to control people. Fear of the stock market going down. Fear of IRAs not doing very well. You know, fear of who will get elected and what does that mean? You know, fear, fear, fear mongering. The storm comes. Fear of the storm. We're going to have a blizzard, blah, blah, blah. We live in South Dakota. We have blizzards all the time, amen? And the news is making this sound like, hunker down. I got a picture. I was in Lincoln, Nebraska when the storm hit here. I got a picture from somebody sent showing the Brookings supermarket, Hy-Vee, and food was gone. It's off the shelves. It's a one-day storm, amen? We'll be fine. You know, I want to just take people's hand. Pet, you'll be fine. It's just a storm. We live in South Dakota. We'll be fine. But there's all this kind of fear-based energy going on in our culture that is just a destructive tool, I think, of Satan against people. I mean, we had this election happen. I've heard people, all kinds of fears. I'm not going to talk politics much with you. Don't worry. I heard all this fear-based stuff going on around the elections. Oh, what are we going to do if this person gets elected? What are we going to do if this person gets elected? We're going to trust God, Amen. That's what we're going to do. I, I was watching the news one day, and they had, after the elections happened, and they had a professor looking very professional, professional, and she was sitting behind her desk looking like professors, I think, are supposed to look. I don't know. Um, anyway, in a very somber way, doing some analysis on the election that had just transpired, and uh, she was a professor at Augustana. Okay, I'll just give you that much. And she said, I gave my students the day off tomorrow because they're so distraught and hopeless after what just happened here. And I thought, wow. <laughs> Some of you are laughing. Yeah, I know where your perspective is right now. But at any rate, um, you know, I, I just listening to that, I'm going, we live in a fear-mongering culture, don't we? And everything is so fear-based and so hopeless-based. Listen, people of God, we had better be people of great hope, amen? Because you and I have that ministry. 
And so right away, as Gabriel's interacting with Zechariah, what the point of this is this. Listen, don't let your fear be an inhibitor here. Hear what I'm about to say to you and let it instill in you hope. That doesn't mean we shouldn't have awe of God. We better have awe of God because that drowns out the fears then. So let's go on and let's continue to unwrap this topic of hope. Hope acts then in faith. Hope acts in faith. Unlike Jesus, John the Baptist wasn't conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was born in the natural way, and his conception occurred in the natural way. So we know that, that Zechariah, even though he didn't respond favorably to the announcement of Gabriel about John, and he was silenced for a season, he went home after a service at the temple. He had sexual relationships with his wife, and they had what? John! So he had that much faith, Amen. It was at least a small act of faith. Would you agree with me? He went home. He did the normal thing that husbands do with wives. And out of that union came John. And and we see the faithfulness of God and the small act of faith of a man who was so utterly hopeless up to that point in his life. We are called to do small acts of faith, brothers and sisters. We are called to do that. You know why? Hey, bring the hope of God into situations. So when you and I give a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus Christ, in other words, if we do just a very small thing for somebody and we do it in the name of Jesus Christ, what do we bring into that situation? The hope of God. We don't think that through, but that's what's happening. You're bringing the hope of God. When, when a neighbor is distraught with something or somebody's suffering for something and you pray for them in the name of Jesus Christ and you do that small act of faith, what's happening? bringing the hope of Jesus into that situation. When someone comes into our church, they're brand new. Maybe you could tell the brand new people here, they look around, they go, where do I go next? They're easy to see if you just start looking at people. And you go up to them and say, hey, welcome here. I'm glad you're here. And you step out of your comfort zone and you have a little bit of courage and you take a little bit of an act of faith just to welcome someone to to this place and say, hey, I'm glad you're here. I love this church. I hope you love the church. If you don't love the church, please don't greet people. Anyway, the, uh, I'm just, bad joke. Guys are so serious today. But then I'm not giving you anything to smile about. At any rate, if you take that small act of faith, you bring hope to that person. Amen? And we have that ministry of bringing hope uh, into situations just by small acts of faith. And, and Zechariah, small act of faith. I'm going to go home. I'm going to have a relationship with my wife. And boom, John the Baptist. God showed his faithfulness. And, and he realized uh, who God really is. And, and he experienced hope. Now, there's more to this gift of hope. I want to unpackage it a little bit more. This, I'm getting to something really important here. This is point number three. Hope rejects unhealthy shame. Hope rejects unhealthy shame. Um, Elizabeth's barrenness is a disgrace to her. She's unable to bear children. In that first century Jewish culture, that was a shaming thing. It's not an illness or condition that she can hide. It's public. Everybody knows about it. She has no kids. It's public knowledge. Her and Zechariah have been married forever. No kids. You know, and it's, it's a shame-based kind of thing going on in her life. It's like you and I having something we want nobody to know about, and, and we can't uh, hide it because it's gone onto the Internet and got viral. And the, and the fact of the matter is it's true. It's kind of having that kind of experience. That's what she had. The rumor was true. She didn't have any kids. And it was terribly, terribly shameful for a woman in that culture to be in that condition. It shouldn't be that way. It should never be that way. But it was that way for her. In becoming pregnant, she's no longer barren. She's no longer disgraced. 
I can just imagine the pillow talk that happened once she came out and told everybody, she's five months pregnant, she's probably showing by then, and people must have said, whoa, did you see Liz? How did that happen? And all of a sudden her disgrace turned into wonderment and questioning what, what's going on here and how did this happen? Um, it, it, Elizabeth took a long time to make this public, five months. Usually when a woman's pregnant, um, they might wait till the first trimester's over, right? Making sure that there's not a miscarriage, because that's where most miscarriage happens and all that kind of thing, you know. Maybe they wait till that moment, but she waited till five months was up. That's a long time to be in seclusion if you're pregnant. And then, boy, she lets her out. She lets her rip. She's no longer disgraced. She's been vindicated. She's done nothing wrong. And, and her shame's been lifted. That's what God does, amen? That's what he does for, for people. Um, listen, I, I want to talk to you for a moment on shame. Shame can be a deserved thing. If you do something wrong, sometimes some shame is associated with it. But oftentimes shame, is a, 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 like fear, is a manipulation tool that culture uses. Uh, when I think of shame, I think of Doug Dog from the movie Up. They got a picture of him up here. Doug Dog, there he is. He's in the cone of shame. And in that movie, the dog can talk because they wear a special collar. And they, none of them wanted to be in the cone of shame. That, that was terribly, terribly shameful, right? Our culture's masterful at doing cone of shame to people. If you're not from the right family, it used to be that way, more so than it is now. You could experience rejection just based on that. Not, don't have the right family name. If you're not smart enough, you can experience the cone of shame. If you're not athletic enough, you can experience the cone of shame. Uh, our culture's masterful at doing this to people. It just seems to be built into the sinfulness of, of culture that we constantly put people in this cone of shame thing. And oftentimes it's very undeserved by the people that are experiencing it. It was surely undeserved by Elizabeth. You know, the good news is this. In Jesus Christ, there's no cone of shame. Right? He takes our shame. He takes it away from us. And you are loved by Christ simply because of who you are and who he is. There is no cone of shame. You know how much of the world needs to hear this message? Do you know how many people live a shame-based life? It's, it's just alarming when you start talking to people how shame-based they are. And we need to bring them this message of great joy that in Jesus Christ there is no shame. He has borne our shame upon the cross and it is no more. And I don't have to perform to be okay. And I don't have to be a certain, you know, heritage to be okay. I don't have to do a certain thing to be okay. I am simply okay because of my Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? And our culture is desperate to hear this message about freedom from shame. Share the hope. Elizabeth took a long time, but then the hope came forth, and she shared the hope. We're called the public proclamation of sharing the hope we have in Jesus Christ because so many people desperately need to hear that. So at some point, you need to go public <laughs> with what God has done in your life. Amen? Some some point you need to go public because somebody out there needs to hear it. They need to hear those words of hope and move from being hopeless and shame-based to being full of the hope of Jesus Christ. Amen? Lastly, hope embraces grace. Now we've unpackaged the gift. Hope embraces grace. God poured his grace out upon Elizabeth and Zechariah and they had the son John. Unmerited grace. They didn't do anything. God's power just flowed into their lives uh, and did something miraculous. Jesus Christ, in the same way, pours his grace out on you and me. We have done nothing to merit the grace, the power of God coming into our lives, but he has come into our lives nonetheless. And even though we're totally unworthy, 
we have received is unmerited grace, amen? And here's one thing I want to talk to you about uh, when it comes to God's a grace. We, we just need to embrace it. Hope embraces this grace. Um, at this time of year, I have uh, a lot of grandkids usually visiting me, and this Thanksgiving was no exception. When they leave, especially the little ones, they hug quite hard. Now, I have to admit, Karis, my two-year-old granddaughter, she's fickle with her hugs. Got to catch her in the right mood. Sometimes you get the cold shoulder, but sometimes you get the all full body hug thing, around the neck, choke the breath out of you kind of hug. Then there's Sam, my little three-and-a-half-year-old boy, uh, grandson. He is a hugger. Oh, my goodness, that boy majors on hugging. He melts into you when he hugs. Every little piece of his body is wrapped around some part of your body, and he just kind of embraces you, you know, that kind of hugger. You go, whoa, nice hug, Sam. You're like A-plus hugger. (laughs) When it comes to Jesus Christ and his grace, that's what we need to do. Quit analyzing it thinking, do I deserve this? My grandkids don't ask, Grandpa, do I deserve your affection? <laughs> they just hug me. And I love to hug them. It's so good to hug them. And it's so sad to see them go home. You know. But we just need to grab Jesus Christ like that and hug on him, amen? And hug on him and embrace his grace. And there's just this hope thing that's infused to, into our beings when we just embrace Jesus and, and, and just fully throw ourselves into him and just, just hug on him. And so today, as we close out the message, I just want to review for you really quickly what we've talked about with hope. When it comes to hope, please, please get these things. Um, hope faces off fears. We can't be fear-based people. We have to have an awe of God that supersedes all that. Amen? And, and then, then we're not going to be people who are manipulated by fear because we fear the only one that we ought to fear, and that's God. Right? Are you with me on that? All of the fear is a manipulation tool. We need to start rebuking that stuff in our lives. That's not of God. If you're a fear-based person at all, then you're being manipulated and controlled by something other than the Holy Spirit. You, you rebuke that. And you say, Holy Spirit, fill me full of the presence of the Father so that I have a dread and an awe of God that's healthy for my soul, but I don't want to be a fear-based person. So first you do that, right? Then, then these small acts of faith I've talked about, they're super important for the people of God to do because every time you do a small act of faith, you infuse hope into that situation, into yourself and into others. We're not shame-based people either, are we? Amen? We are not shame-based people because Christ is in us. And Christ is the one that makes us complete. And in Christ I stand, and I stand in him alone. Amen? And oftentimes, unintentionally parents do this to their children. They infuse some shameful thing into them that that kid at 50 years of age, now they're an adult, okay? They're still functioning in a shame-based, you know, dysfunctional way. At some point, you have to shake off that shame and you tear off the cone because Christ is in you and greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And we are not shame-based people. Shame comes from Satan. It's an attack thing to destroy people. And that's not who we are. Amen? Are you with me on this? Man, I tell you, God's grace is truly sufficient. All we got to do is hug on that thing. Just grab a hold of this grace and embrace it. You do all these things, that's hope unpackaged. That's hope unwrapped. So we're going to end with a declaration today. Would you read this out loud with me? It's going to show up over here on the bottom part of the screen. Just read this out loud with me. Here we go. 
I believe that in Jesus I have hope. Okay, that was really weak. We're going to read it one more time. Let's do it. I believe that in Jesus I have hope. For 10 years I served at a church in um, Williston, North Dakota, named New Hope. And it was really named that way on purpose because in Christ we have hope. And uh, it basically got its name from Romans 15, 13. Let me talk to you for a few moments on this. No, just 30 seconds. Romans 15, 12 says this. The root of Jesse will spring up. One will rise to rule over the nations. The Gentiles will hope in him. That's a reference in Romans 15 by the Apostle Paul all the way back to Isaiah. Where Isaiah prophesied. Remember, this candle, this first candle here that we lit today is the hope candle. It's also called the the prophecy candle, because it's all about standing on the promises that we have in Jesus Christ. It's all about having hope in Jesus Christ. Well, Isaiah declared, you know, uh, centuries before uh, Romans, that, that a branch would come out of the stump of Jesse, right? A branch would come out of what seemed dead. And then that Paul says, the root of Jesse will spring up. It has happened. And, and the Gentiles now have a hope. But listen to verse 13. This became the verse uh, of New Hope Church in Williston. It is a wonderful verse to end with today here as we talk on this topic of hope. Listen to this. May the God, this is the Apostle Paul now speaking though. Now he turns, he talks about in 12, verse 12 about this hope Gentiles will have in, in Jesus. But now it's like he's talking to us. It's like he's looking us each in the eyeball and he says this. May the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow, overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're not just supposed to be people that dabble in hope every now and then. We're just supposed to be like a fountain bubbling over with hope all the time. That's who we are to be. It's the people of God, amen? And that's who we can be in Jesus Christ if we'll just embrace him. Would you bow your heads and we'll pray. Lord God, I want to thank you for this first Advent Sunday. I pray that we all would grab a hold of this concept of the hope we have in Christ. May we realize that there is no failure, there is no hopeless situation, Lord, that is beyond your capabilities. That emptiness and hopelessness is never the final word when it comes to you, God. But that you delight. You delight in working in these situations that seem beyond human capabilities. That's who you are as God. And so this day, Lord, we, we just embrace the grace that you've given us in Jesus Christ. We embrace the hope we have in him. We will not be fear-based or shame-based people. Instead, we'll be people based in the hope of Christ, our resurrected Lord. And this first Advent day, as we kind of march towards Christmas, is this reminder that we're people full of hope. May that just uh, define the people of Grace Point today. May it define every single believer in here this day. May your hope just come into our hearts because it should be there all the time anyway. And may it just become something that dominates our thinking, dominates our look, dominates our interaction with other people. God, we just pray all this and we claim it in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. 